Our text today is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And if you want, you can turn there. But you might also want to keep a finger in the book of Galatians, as I'll mention things from there from time to time. We've come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians, but we're going back, as we did with the book of James, to look at certain themes in light of what Paul wrote in this letter. Last Sunday, we looked at the issue of truth. Our text was Philippians 4.8, in which Paul called on the Philippians to take into account, to give consideration to, to dwell on such things. And he gives a list of six qualities, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. I chose to focus on the first, that is, whatever is true. And I took as my starting point that for Paul, as well as the rest of Scripture, it is in Jesus Christ that all truth is centered. When we say whatever is true, ultimately we are speaking of Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he wasn't speaking in the narrow sense that I'm the truth about how you get to heaven and escape hell. But rather that all truth is centered in him. Our text today is John chapter 8, verse number 32. Perhaps a familiar verse to you. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To say that Jesus Christ is the truth presents certain problems living when and where we do. And the difficulties aren't merely outside the church that we'd say, well, those non-Christians out there, that's the problem. Um, We, in fact, have problems within the church as well. I'll only mention three by way of review, three difficulties that we face in seeing Jesus Christ as the totality of truth. The first is that we live in a post-Christian world and that whenever somebody speaks of truth, it is generally assumed that that person is speaking of what is true for him or for her. Um, And that's true with with a lot of things. Goodness, happiness, beauty. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. For you, that's beautiful, but that's not necessarily beautiful for other people. I hope that in the weeks to come, we will, in fact, look at these matters. Goodness, happiness, and beauty. Um, But, first of all, the difficulty we face is the world is no longer Christian. And so when we say things like, this is truth, the world doesn't necessarily disagree. It simply says, oh, you mean truth for you. That in a post-Christian world, there is no overarching truth for all people. The second difficulty, and we talked about this at some length last week, is how the church over the last 20 centuries has read scripture. And to review briefly, um, the point is that the church has moved away from the idea of the use of story. In the early church, they saw themselves as the continuation of God's plan, as promised to Abraham. In the language of the illustration I gave several Sundays ago, the church saw itself as a band of travelers who had joined into a group of people who had already traveled quite a distance. Israel began at sea, for the sake of illustration, on a ship. They come ashore in the person of Jesus, and that part of the journey is finished. Paul tells us in Galatians, the law had a function, but now that function is gone, and now they continue on land. 
and we as Gentiles join in with this traveling band of God's people. The early church saw Jesus as truth. They saw in him, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, the turning point of human history. That is, that the kingdom of God is broken into history. For them, scripture tells us about Jesus, and they are authoritative. They have authority. The scriptures tell us the truth about the nature of things. But as we saw that over the course of time, and actually it didn't take that long in a couple of centuries, the church seemed to lose the sense of continuity. They forgot, if you wish, or underplayed the first part of the journey at sea. They forgot that they were in fact part of a continuation of a promise that was made to Abraham centuries before. The sense of story was set aside and narrative, the narrative portions of scripture were weakened. Rather, they were seen as allegory, that they actually meant something different than what they seem to be saying. The use of allegory is actually not all that encouraging because the reality of the story, the reality of the narrative, is conveniently set aside. And then the story can mean pretty much anything that you want. The Bible is still seen as authoritative to these people. But that authority, I think, is weakened in that now there is not a sense of this is what Scripture says, but, okay, this is what it says, but this is what I think it means, using allegory. As we've seen before, prior to the Reformation, it was popular to believe that Scripture, every passage of Scripture, had four different meanings. Uh, it was called the quadriga, uh, which meant literally a wagon pulled by four horses. They believed that it had uh, a literal meaning, which could be allegorical, interestingly enough, Moral, which is how you are supposed to behave. Doctrinal, that is what it teaches us about what is good theology. And lastly, sort of a mystical, almost eschatological, it's telling us about the future. Again, the Bible is seen as authoritative. But in the process of doing this, something begins to emerge as rivaling scripture, and that is tradition. Because if you have all these different interpretations, which is the right one, and slowly but surely, tradition begins to come to the forefront. In the Reformation, the Reformers embrace the theme of sola scriptura, that is only the scripture. And the authority of scripture was restored. It is only in scripture that we find that which is true. This, that is, it tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells us about God. It tells us what is true. It's not simply a resource to sort of build up our defenses theologically or tear somebody else's down theologically. And for the Reformers, the centrality of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the turning point of human history was recovered. This, I think, had been lost, and it is recovered during the Reformation. The four ways of understanding Scripture are set aside in favor of one. And unfortunately, over time, words change their meaning. The Reformers believed in the literal sense of Scripture, which in the 20th century of fundamentalism means that everything is to be taken literal, but that is not what they meant. What they meant is, what did the original author intend? So that in the poetic sections, the author intended to be poetic, to use metaphors. Okay? In the symbolic and the apocalyptic passages, that's what the author intended. And the Reformers recovered this, which I think is wonderful. The Catholic Church, from which they'd come out of, 
in, in a sense, to sort of shore up, shore up its position. And the Council of Trent uh, made it clear that, yes, we hold to the authority of Scripture, but we believe that tradition is equal in authority to Scripture. And so the divide between Catholicism and Protestantism, Protestantism became, I think, very evident. Unfortunately, I would say that the Reformers did not recover the place of story. They did see Jesus as the turning point of history, but they seem conveniently to have forgotten the first part of the story, and that we are in fact joining this band of travelers that began with Abraham and his descendants. The Reformation also marked the beginning of the modern age. In the modern age, reason is what came to the forefront. In turning away from the Roman Catholic Church, which was the church, which had authority, and turning to scripture, the question remained, okay, if the church is no longer the repository of truth, how could you know that something was true? You reason it out, and reason became the new authority for many people. It became the authority to understand all things, including the Bible itself. So in place of literal, in place of allegorical, moral, theological, what we have is what came to be known as the plain sense. That is, as you read scripture, what does it say to you? What is the plain sense of a particular passage? Well, this can mean anything to anyone, and it really opened a Pandora's box of interpretations. Ultimately, it robbed the Bible of any authority, because this is what it says to me. It may some, say something different to you, but it says this to me, and then we find ourselves, in, in, in a sense, a slippery slope to the post-Christian world, where your truth is precisely that it is truth for you, but not necessarily for me. The third difficulty we face, living, when, and where we do, is the loss of story. And I see at least four parts to this. The first is that the church itself has turned away from story as a means of communication and a means of communicating the truth. The church seems to have lost its, its way in, in terms of the story of continuity. They seem to have forgotten the first part of the journey, or they've underplayed it. And now it's all about doctrine and theology and principles and propositions. Secondly, the church, at least some parts of it, has decided to share the authority of scriptures with others. For some, it is tradition. For others, in the modern age, it is reason. As we come more and more to the, closer to the present, it becomes experience. I said this last week. These things are not wrong in and of themselves. Tradition. Do we imagine that we are the first Christians on this planet? Of course not. Do we imagine that we know better than all those who lived before us? You're going on thin ice there. We have had great Christians, dear brothers and sisters, who have lived centuries before us. We should learn from them. But their authority is not equal to that of Scripture. Reason is important. Experience is important, but it is not equal in authority to Scripture. The third part of the loss of story is that the Enlightenment, the modern age, brought with it a new story. And this is the story or the myth of progress. You see, everybody has a different story and the Enlightenment said, okay, everyone just shut up. We are now going to share the same story. And that story is the story of progress. 
What is fascinating to me is to think of the last two centuries in the light of this. That if you think about it, almost all philosophies, all political views, all economic policies have shared this common story. Where they differ, and sometimes it's led to serious conflict, is how to fulfill the story of progress. But they all believe in progress. And if you take the most appalling and dreadful the terrible events of the 19th and 20th centuries, behind them was the desire to make the world a better place and to fulfill the story of human progress. Interestingly enough, for some, the French Revolution, with all its horrors, is seen as the dawning of the modern age. And then Darwin came along, and he made it all scientific. And many said, there it is. Science has proved the great story, the story of human progress. Just looking at the 20th century, which is depressing enough as it is, but not going back any further. At the turn of the century, the United States, uh, in its desire to take a colony, uh, took the Philippines. And in a three-year period of time, one in ten Filipinos were killed. Out of ten million Filipinos, one million were killed because we were going to civilize them. As Rudyard Kipling said, we were going to take up the white man's burden. In World War I, 15 million were killed. In the 1920s in the Soviet Union, 25 million died. More than 20 million were killed by the Nazi regime. 30 million died in the 1950s in the People's Republic of China. In the 1970s, one in four Cambodians was killed in the genocide known as the Killing Fields. Why? It's the story of progress. We're going to make the world a better place. And we might have to kill you in order to help others out. As one person said, we may have to kill half the population in order to help the other half progress. I found it interesting that this past week, the new president of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, said that the world is suffering from a crisis of confidence. And though I think she is speaking of economic matters, I would suggest that the world and the postmodern world has lost its story. We no longer believe in progress. And without the grand story and rejecting the story of scripture, the world has lost its way. The fourth thing that we saw last week is that the postmodern world has re-embraced the idea of story but it is something that is personal and without any authority. One of the good things I would say about postmodernity is that it has rejected, it has renounced the myth of progress. The 20th century, I think, has cured us, or many of us at least, of that. It has rejected all big stories, or what are known as meta-narratives. There is no big story by which we are all to live our lives. Instead, we turn to the individual to, each, to hear each story, to acknowledge the value of each. That's not necessarily wrong. But in the process, authority goes out the window. That's your story. This is my story. What I hope I have shown you, in part, in our study in Galatians, is the central place of story in Scripture. And I hope that you've come to recognize that there is in Scripture a grand narrative, a grand story that begins with the creation of all things and ends with the restoration or the renewal of all things and the linchpin, the hinge, the turning point of history is the coming of Jesus Christ. He is 
the truth. Sadly, the story or the stories of Scripture are rejected or ignored. And truth for many Christians today is reduced, and I'll put reduced in quotation marks, to propositions. This allows Christians to speak about doctrine, to speak about theology, but to remain biblically illiterate and to know very little about the Old Testament, which I think is tragic. That many Christians know doctrine, but they don't know scripture. And the result is our understanding of scripture is radically different than what was originally intended. The question, though, that I want to deal with today is, how can you know what is true? What does it mean to know? In our text we read, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've looked at the matter of truth, but what about knowing? A number of times in his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote about knowing something. In chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 11, I'll read verse 12 as well. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, as he confronts Peter and speaks to him, he says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law no one will be justified. So again, what does it mean to know? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Let's, let's begin by recognizing that this is not simply a problem for us as Christians, or it's not simply a problem if you're going to study the Bible. It is a critical issue, I think, for studying all things, all of life, for studying literature, for studying history, yes, and even doctrine. In the modern era, we find among some an almost unbridled optimism about so much, including that about which we can have definite knowledge. What emerged in the modern age is the view that there are things that are objectively true, true apart from us. That is, that there are some things that we can have and actually do have solid and unquestionable knowledge about. These things can be tested empirically. You can observe them. You can measure them all within the physical world. On the face of it, this is very attractive. This seems to give a certain amount of security. We can know that something is so. But if you take this to its logical conclusion, what about the things that you cannot test? The things that you cannot observe? In a sense, these things are seen as unreal and for some even nonsense. I remember reading years ago about uh, lovers being on the bank of the Seine River in Paris, deeply in love, and yet weeping because there is no such thing as love. Because you can't know, because you can't test it, you can't observe it. It has no tangibility to it. And so when you speak of love, it's reduced to mere feeling. 
In many ways, this way of knowledge has been abandoned, and yet it still lingers. And if you doubt it, just watch a TV commercial or two in which the genuineness or the power of a product is sort of put forward by the fact that it has been scientifically tested. And we're like, well, scientifically tested. It must be right. They have tested it. They've observed it. They've done all these tests. And therefore, it in fact must be true. And I think in many ways, when we, even as God's people, speak of knowing, this has infected our thinking. But we know, if I may put it that way, that not all human knowledge fits into this category. What do you do about the metaphysical? What do you do about the things you cannot see? Well, in the modern age, this way of knowing downgrades these things. And so metaphysical, which meta should actually be sort of higher than physical, it becomes lower than, and these things are less than significant. And they are downgraded from knowledge to the category of belief. See, we can know things, the modern tells us, but certain things you can't know, and so you just have to believe them. You have to take them on faith. In some ways, the church was happy enough to go along with this. After all, we are people of faith, aren't we? And so, as being people of faith, we reject knowledge, I think quite wrongly, particularly in light of our text, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, why did Jesus talk about knowledge if all it is is a matter of belief? And so, we came to say that someone, if they do not know something, that in fact they may believe something. And we have to ask ourselves, how does this affect the way we view Scripture? How does this affect the way we view the Lord Jesus Christ? It has profound implications for my field, that is history. So you have to ask, when you read about some event, some person, something in history, is, is that knowledge objective or is it subjective? I mean, did it really happen? Did he or she really live? Or is that just some subjective something that somebody wrote down and now it's been transmitted all these centuries later? How can we know if somebody lived? How can I know if Julius Caesar actually lived? Slowly but surely, the question becomes, how do I know if Jesus of Nazareth lived? And so then people begin to talk about proof. Well, in the modern way, there's, you cannot prove this because it cannot be observed, it cannot be tested, it cannot be reduplicated. You can't do this over again. And then Christians get very nervous. How do we prove to people that Jesus lived? How do we prove that he is the Son of God? Well, ultimately, in the modern age, this cannot be done because of this view of knowing. Okay? One cannot prove scientifically that Jesus lived. One cannot prove scientifically that he was raised from the dead. Yes, but there is so much of life, everyday life, that we cannot prove scientifically. And yet we seem happy enough to live with these things. In the modern age, and again, it echoes in our time still, there is this unspoken claim that if you really, really want to know something, you must be able to verify it. That if you can't verify it, then you really can't know it. 
Well, not everyone in the modern age was optimistic. Some were much more pessimistic. And when confronted with the external world, how do you know that things exist? They would say, well, because my senses tell me. Sense data. What I can see, what I can hear, what I can touch. These things, well, I think they're real. And sort of almost a pseudo-humility. I can't really, really know, but I, but I think that these things are here. Um, the optimist would say, I know that this is correct. The pessimist would say, I would want to argue that this is correct, that this might be correct. And so the view of reality in both camps, by the way, became very disjointed in which you have the observer and you have the object. And for the sake of this demonstration, I will be the observer and this chair will be the object. In the optimistic view of looking at things, I look objectively at this reality. I test it by empirical observation. Go over and touch it. It's got mass. It's solid. It really is there. But if, in fact, these tests don't work, then I say, well, it's, it's nonsense, absolute nonsense. The pessimistic view says, okay, I think that there might actually be something there. Um, but all I have are my sense data. My eyes may be playing tricks on me. And even if I touch it, um, it, it might not really be there. This is, I think, very inviting because it sounds like one is being truly humble, you know, versus the arrogance of those who say they know or can know so many things. Um, But at the end of the day, how can you know anything at all? How can you know anything at all? I remember years ago when I first went to University of California at Irvine, I was with a group of scholars afterwards one night uh, in a professor's place, and uh, they were talking about different aspects of history and it just really began to deconstruct things. And you can't be sure of this and can't be sure of this. And at one point I wanted to stand up on a chair or on a table and just say, well, what you're saying is you can't be sure of anything. Because you just, it's like peeling an onion. Ultimately you're left with nothing. What is the right way of viewing reality? Well, N.T. Wright, in the book of his known as the New Testament and the People of God, describes what he calls critical realism. That the process of knowing acknowledges the reality of the thing known, the chair is there, as something that is different from me. Okay, It's separate from me. And yet, at the same time, that the only access I have to this reality is in a dialogue, if you wish, between the knower and the known. This, I think, is the radical difference between the Christian faith and all other things. For us, there is not this disjointed observer on the one hand and object on the other. Knower and the known. For us, yes, there are these two things, but there is a dialogue that goes on in between them. There is a connection. We're not disconnected. We're not detached. Objective. I will just stand over here and observe this object. In fact, there is a dialogue, there is a conversation of sorts that goes on between us. So, using the diagram I mentioned earlier, okay, my initial observation is that sure looks like a chair to me, from my point of view. But then this is challenged uh, by various things I have in my head. Well, 
you know, I have I have a chair in the house, but it doesn't look like this chair. This chair does look a bit different than what I'm used to seeing. But in fact, I, it is a chair that I can know that it is a chair. This is where the whole idea of stories comes in. This is the dialogue, the communication that goes on between the knower and the known. Stories are, I think, the most basic way of communication between human beings. An overall narrative is, in fact, the basic category by which certain acts are to be understood. You see, we don't do random things, crazy things, and then try to make sense of it. We, in fact, have a story, and then these things take place, are understood, because they are, in fact, part of a larger story. If you do random things and then try to make sense of it, people would say either you're drunk or you're crazy. Because the fact is we live our lives by story. Our lives are grounded in and established by stories. Stories that human beings tell to one another. Now, this sort of freaks people out. And so what they do is they say, listen, um, stories are actually illustrations that there's something more basic than story, and that is principle or proposition. Uh, and then you use the story to illustrate the truth of what you're trying to say. Some would argue that stories are a poor man's uh, road to philosophy, if you wish. That, you know, uneducated people can't really get to this deep philosophical principle of things. And so we have to tell them stories, and, and this way it becomes accessible to them. Some believe that stories are merely the setting within which we put these rhetorical devices in which we tell people this is what is true. I would disagree and I would argue that stories are a basic component of human life. They are key to what we call one's worldview. A worldview is a way in which we view the world, a grid through which we look and perceive reality and come to understand it. I would even argue that stories are even a more basic reality than belief. On the map of human knowing, how we know things, stories, I think, are foundational even to belief. They provide a framework by which we can experience the world. They also provide a framework by which we can challenge other views of the world. And this is what Paul does in the book of Galatians. He writes to the men or to the people in Galatia that men from Jerusalem have come and they've told a different story. Again, we tend to think in terms of theology, works for salvation. You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul tells the Galatians this is a different gospel. This is a different story of the good news. And then he proceeds to make his argument by telling them a series of stories. And I know that you've heard this many times, but just to repeat it, he begins with his story, which is actually three parts, his conversion events before, during, and after, and then his second trip to Jerusalem with uh, Barnabas, and then thirdly, his confrontation of Peter. Then he tells the Galatians story, that is, who has bewitched you? The story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise, the story of the law, the story of faith, the story of the new exodus in chapter 4, and then the story of the Galatians part 2, and then the story of Paul and the Galatians together. And then finally he ends chapter 4 
with the story of the free woman and Hagar. And this is an allegory. Yet I suspect for all the time that we've spent talking about story, I can't shake the feeling that we want facts, we want principles, we want doctrine. And in part, our way of thinking about knowing has been affected by the age in which we live, the age that came before us. The reading of scripture apart from story has also affected our way of thinking and knowing. And I think we've convinced ourselves that stories are just that. They're just stories. Things that we tell children in Sunday school or before they go to bed at night. Rather than it being the story which is the way in which God has chosen to communicate to those made in his image. The story of the gospel is not simply our story. It is the story for all creation. Jesus is the truth. Now, modern thinking is wrong when it argues that perception comes before the larger realities. You know, first you perceive it and then all the things follow from that. The fact is, what they fail to realize is that all facts come with baggage. Nothing simply stands on its own. It already has things there with it. So that if you picture an object, you're not simply looking at its physical properties. There are other things that come to play. Objects carry stories about them. And we can only know what objects are by the stories that we have in our heads that, that we can somehow fit these things into. So to go back to what I was talking about earlier, about the observer and the object, um, let's use that. Let's say on the one hand, not observer, you have a storytelling human being. That is a human being who lives with stories. On the other hand, not the object, but you have a story-laden world, a world full of stories. I, as a human, the world of stories, see an object about which there are many stories. And so my initial observation already has things with it. I can't simply be detached. I can't say a fact is a fact is a fact and, and have nothing attached to it. For this particular chair... There are many stories that could go with it. Um, invariably, when I see it, I think of two people. A friend of ours, Steve, who stripped it and refinished it. And then of Ruth's mom, Mama De La Rosa, who redid the cushion. There are two stories there. I don't simply see an object. But I see something that has a story. And I can't also help but think, usually when I'm sitting in it, that Boy, this looks an awful lot like a throne. And I'm not a king. And what am I doing sitting in this? Well, it's actually quite beautiful. See, as human beings, as God's people, we should not try to detach ourselves from reality and say, here we are, we are observers, we're looking at objects. We should, in fact, see ourselves as people who live by stories in a world filled with stories. There's so many implications to this way of thinking. And as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but feel that somehow I might provoke more questions than give answers. But one of the implications is that this idea of object, objective versus subjective really needs to be put aside. It needs to be abandoned. 
Knowledge has to do with the interrelation of human beings and the created world. There's a connection. There's to be an interrelation. Part of the story is that we are made in the image of the Creator. We've been given the task of exercising responsibility, wise responsibility within creation. This means that we are not detached from creation, but we are in fact a part of creation in it to take care of it. Knowledge is a form of stewardship. In a fallen world, as Christ is redeeming it, it is a form of redeeming stewardship. This means that knowledge can be, in a real sense, a form of love. To know is to be in relationship with the known. We don't say observer, object. Even if we say knower, known, they aren't apart. There is, in fact, an interrelationship between them. The stories that we find are about these relationships, the connection between the knower and the known. Our view of knowing should be relational rather than that of detached, being detached. A fact is a fact is a fact. What this means for us is that what we know you will know the truth. It goes way beyond my sense data. What I can touch, what I can see, what I can hear. And in fact, this is what Thomas wanted. And Jesus was kind enough to provide him with that. But from all indications, Thomas did not take advantage of that. Because it is not ultimately about sense data. It is about relationship. My Lord and my God. We must be careful as God's people that our thinking about knowing is biblical rather than modern or even postmodern. If you're still in John chapter 8, in the verse before our text, in verse number 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then our text then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If we're not careful here, we will reduce truth and teaching in verse number 31 to something that is an objective reality, something of which we are the observers. We will decide whether or not something is true or not. And we will fail to recognize and realize the relational component of knowing and that in Christian faith and in Christian knowing, love is the highest form of knowing. When we read the Gospels and we read about Jesus of Nazareth, we do not find a Jesus who can be objectively grasped, as one writer put it, pinned to a page like a dead butterfly. Yeah, this is Jesus. This is all the historical information about him. But we also do not find a Jesus who can be known only subjectively, that somehow when I read the Gospels, I have an experience of Jesus of Nazareth. Knowing is about relationship. And Paul tells the Galatians this as well. Listen to what he writes in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? What does Paul mean here by know and being known? Is it the modern optimistic or pessimistic view in which the observer is detached from the object being observed, in which the knower and the known have no connection whatsoever? Doesn't seem like it, does it? What I hear is relationship. And although the Galatians are on the verge of messing up big time, I also hear love. As I said, when we studied this passage in chapter 4, it almost seems that Paul corrects himself in verse number 9. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Some years later, he would write his first epistle to the Corinthians. And in chapter 8, he would say, the man who thinks, ESB has imagines, that he knows something, does not yet know as he ought to know. The, the Corinthians were all about knowing Verse 3, but the man who loves God is known by God. You'll notice that Paul shifts from knowing to loving. That is, what really matters is not your knowledge of God, but rather God's knowledge of you. While we can know God, our knowledge, I would argue, is small, feeble, and partial. If that would be the basis of our reality, we would be in serious trouble. What matters is that God has known us. And again, do we imagine that God is some great big observer there in the sky and we are the objects and he observes us and he knows us? He knows all this information about us? No. There is a relationship between the knower and the known. That's what it means to know. That's what it means to know the truth. God has established a bond, a covenant, in which he comes to know us through and through, and he names us as his own family. So we can know the truth, and the truth will set us free. But what does it mean to know? I hope that I've opened a few doors for you today, give you things to think about. In closing, I would remind you that the first temptation, the first sin, that which plunged the whole universe into darkness, was the desire to have knowledge apart from relationship. Knowledge without relationship. Did God really say that? Oh, God's lying to you. He knows if you eat this, you will be like him. It's knowledge, but no relationship. And when Adam and Eve ate, the result was the shattering of all relationships. The relationship with the Creator, with oneself, with others, and with creation itself. The desire to know apart from having a relationship. I understand that we feel, as God's people, the, de the necessity, perhaps, the desire to defend the faith. We want to be able to prove to people that the gospel is true. 
But we have to work out some ground rules first. And one of them is, what do you mean by no? Because if I take what most people in the world today mean by no, uh, we're not getting anywhere. Because they cannot be consistent. Because there are so many things they cannot know based on their system, they simply take it for granted. But let's back away from defending the faith. Let's talk about living the faith. Let's talk about being God's people. Let's talk about reading scripture, studying scripture. When we think of knowing, is it observer-object? When we think about what's happening right now, preacher, people in the pews, are we thinking that somehow I have this repository of knowledge and here I'm passing it on to you? That knowledge is this objective thing that we can sort of pass around like a basketball. Or is it, in fact, a relationship between the knower and the known? Adam and Eve's sin shattered relationships. Jesus came back, he came into the world to bring back these relationships. He came to restore all things. And to know this and to know him is not mere information. It is to enter into relationship. And it is to understand the grand story of things that God created all things. And one day he will restore all things. And this happens because Jesus came into the world. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Father, on some level, it's deeply frightening how much our thinking has been influenced by the surrounding culture more than it has by your word. And so when it comes to something as basic as knowing, we think more like the world than like you. We see ourselves as detached knowers. And sadly, even your truth becomes an object. And even you and your son become objects. Father, there's a lot for us to think about, to think through. By your spirit, may we do that. But more than that, may we not simply think it through, become knowers apart from the known but may we enter into a relationship with that which we can know. I ask that it would profoundly change the way we think and the way we live, beginning with our relationship with you, and then our relationship with one another and with your creation. How patient you are with us, how good you are to us. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing the doxology together.